on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, with a new surge of military veterans running for Congress, we begin with an old political campaign ad. Sometimes an everyday person comes along and helps put the impossible within our reach. Right here in Minnesota, Tim Walls is one of those everyday people. Coach to the state champs, teacher of the year, command sergeant major, retiring four years late after a tour supporting the war in Afghanistan. That ad in 2006 introduced Minnesota voters to congressional candidate Tim Walls. I'm Tim Walls, and I approve this message. My guest, Jeremy Teigen, a veteran and author of a new book on the role of military service in American electoral politics, used the Tim Walls ad to test an important idea. I edited the ad so that some of the subject in the experiment saw Tim Walls as a military veteran, and some did not see his military experience. I changed Tim Walls from a Republican to a Democrat, as well as ignoring his party, so there were multiple different stimuli. It was a little bit of a ruse. We'll soon hear what the ruse revealed about politics in America. I'm Michael Shoulder, and this is the first Wavemaker episode on veterans running for office in the midterm elections. Joining me now is Jeremy Teigen, author of Why Veterans Run, Military Service in American Presidential Elections, 1789 to 2016. Jeremy is a professor at Ramapo College in New Jersey. Jeremy, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. It's great to be with you. Before we even get into the issue of veterans, I came across you when I was researching this story. I had not known of you, and I immediately went to rate my professors because I wanted to see what your students say about you. <laughs> well, fortunately, it's good news here. I want to read a few of the ratings here. Oh, dear. Professor Teigen was very approachable, made himself available to students for all concerns. Frequently, he would add humor to his lectures. So I said, okay, this could be a good guest, but I've got some more intimidating stuff here. He's not an easy A, but you definitely get what you put in. Honestly, one of the best professors at Ramapo. He is a great professor, multiple exclamation points. However, he is a hard grader. So how tough are you? <laughs> I guess I've found that it's good to have multiple gears to engage students. Let me ask you then, before we get even into the congressional issue and veterans as candidates, you are a military veteran, correct? That's true. I served in the United States Air Force for four years. I signed up right out of high school in the late 80s as the Cold War was ending. What did you do in the Air Force? It's kind of a hard to describe job, but it was very interesting. I got into radar. And the job I had been assigned was to do electronic combat simulation. Throughout the Cold War, American intelligence assets have been routinely trying to get Soviet radar technology so that we could use it and replicate it. So I learned how to repair and operate old Soviet radar from the 60s and 70s and operate it in places like Kentucky and Idaho so that strategic air command crews could sort of play with us and they would call ahead and say, all right, we're going to come pretend bomb your targets. You're going to try to pretend shoot us out of the sky. And we'd put on the headsets and then all the lights would go down and I'm sitting in a radar booth with little knobs in front of me, desperately trying to find a B-52 coming up over the horizon. And then your heart rate goes up and the tension is definitely there. 
and then you'd launch your fake missiles and then some neutral observer radar would sort of score the whole thing. I played probably one of the most expensive video games in human history, basically. <laughs> Let me ask you, because it is during that military experience that you sort of got the seeds of this interest in veterans and politics and the role that having military experience plays in running for office and in being an appealing candidate. And there was a particular incident you mentioned to me, which I'd love you to talk about. Sure. I was young, roughly 20, when the 1992 presidential election was unfolding. And I was still in uniform and surrounded by enlisted men and women. The issue that really resonated most with the enlisted people around me was the fact that Bill Clinton had evaded the draft in the 1960s. So an issue that was 30 years past was the most important thing to them. And they really thought that it disqualified Bill Clinton as a presidential candidate. And they talked about this at great length. And I'd stored that thought. And then only later when I was in grad school, in Bill Clinton's later years, having defeated two World War II veterans in 1992 and 1996, I kind of thought the idea of military service and elections might be waning, but it remains salient in subsequent elections. Well, it's interesting because both candidates who Clinton defeated, so George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41, and Bob Dole, both had combat experience, very close calls. In fact, I'm going to play a little bit right now of George Bush's son, Neil, describing what George Herbert Walker Bush experienced in World War II and what he survived. My father was flying a combat mission. His plane was third or fourth in line to attack a radio tower on the island of Chichijima. Um, and, and by the time his plane was lined up to drop the bombs, the enemy had already kind of zoomed in on his site and was firing a flak and hit his plane. His plane was on fire. He completed the bombing mission, dropped the bombs on the tower, circled back before the plane exploded and told his comrades to bail out. And my father uh, ejected from the plane. His rubber raft went with him and inflated. My father was swimming for his life and saw a periscope pop through the water. And luckily, it was an American periscope. And he was, he was rescued. What he really learned from that, that helped him as president of the United States, was that he served shoulder to shoulder with people from all walks of life. Um, and, he, and he witnessed firsthand the, the risks of putting you know, our troops in harm's way. One of the interesting things that really struck me with that is this whole idea that by being a veteran, Bush and anybody else who serves is put in with people from all walks of life, that they all have to get the mission done. You know, thinking back to my days in uniform, I grew up in a fairly white part of Wisconsin without a lot of exposure to the grand variety that is the American experience. And within eight hours of basic training, I was instantly dumped into the deep end of meeting people from all over. And my four years in the ranks were wonderful, partially from this logic that you ask about, Mike, which is that being in an organization where we all had to work together, it bears reminding that the United States Armed Forces is the only place in America where you see black people bossing around white people and no one bats an eye. It is an entirely meritocratic organization. It solved racial issues decades before civilian society did. It's what Tom Ricks, who has written quite a bit about 
the military and the war in Iraq. He called the military the Great Society in camouflage. It's the only place you can find single payer, for example. It's a community. That's a great phrase, the Great Society in camouflage. Right, right. I think he was trying to challenge his readers to think about this seemingly right-wing institution that Republicans like to pour money into. But when you actually experience it as an individual, it's very government subsidized. Your health care is covered. You get to three squares a day. Your housing's taken care of. Ooh, that starts to sound awfully <laughs> government helped, shall we say. And so I think Ricks was trying to challenge the notion that we expect every member that leaves the armed forces to favor Republicans and challenge that trope. You tell me, what do veterans bring to the table? Is there something universal? I mean, is there some data that shows veterans do very well in this environment for reasons X, Y, and Z? It's a great question. And in the process of writing the book, I've discovered that the answer to that question depends very heavily on which era in American history are we looking at presidential candidates. I look from George Washington through Donald Trump, and the value of a veteran is something that has changed for each successive war cohort and I'll give you a couple examples that I think will help your listeners understand what I mean. You know, we've mentioned George H.W. Bush and Bob Dole, both World War II veterans, combat veterans exposed to enemy fire. There were approximately 20 million men that were age eligible in the 1940s, and there are 16 million World War II veterans. If you do the math in your head, that tells you that virtually three quarters of a generation put on a uniform. And because of that draft and because of the almost universal service of that age of men, they were Republicans and Democrats both. They came from all walks of life, from all socioeconomic sectors, and they were all thrown into the same cauldron of war, the same experience. It was something that was shared. The military service played as a biographical cue. It had no partisan advantage. It was a positive cue. But it wasn't terribly unique, as most men their age had been in uniform. Let me just stop you for a second. Uh, your book starts with a great anecdote about the late Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. And before he ran for office, when he was in World War II. I landed on D-Day with the 82nd Airborne Division in Normandy. And then we went on uh, into Belgium. And of course, when we got in Belgium, that's when the Battle of the Bulge occurred. Germans were dropping... Uh, those bombs down on the people going back and several, just a couple of calls for me, a bomb dropped and killed a lot of people. And so I'm pretty lucky, I think. Wow. I didn't get killed. But we went from there on one place to the other and on, on into Germany as far as we could go. We had fought all the way through from D-Day on. Tell us why he thought his military service would be such an advantage given the fact that it was sort of a baseline, in a sense, for most candidates. He was a little bit older than the average GI in World War II. He had a desk job in England. But as June 6, 1944 approached and the Allied invasion of Nazi Europe was about to begin, he was desperate to find a way into D-Day somehow. And so he somehow convinced somebody in the 82nd Airborne to let him ride along on one of the gliders. One way we got a lot of soldiers and materiel inland is through this basically a disposable combat ferry, an airborne combat ferry. So we'd fill this awkward 
tub of a glider, maybe put a Jeep and some ammo and a few men in it and drag it into the air with another airplane, aim it (laughs) at France and hope for the best. And these gliders would intentionally try to have a soft crash landing. And so Strom Thurmond got to ride shotgun on one of these. His glider happened to crash into an apple orchard somewhere behind the beach, and they were instantly engaged in firefights and there was a little confusion at first. And so at some point he jumped into a foxhole with a guy by the name of Captain Stuyvesant Wainwright. And Wainwright said that Strom Thurmond jumped into the foxhole and screamed at the top of his lungs that being in here at this D-Day is going to be worth 250,000 votes back home. And that really resonated with the conventional wisdom that this book tests, which is that military service provides candidates with a boost at the ballot box because of their wartime or peacetime service. It's interesting because the drama of that particular story probably did get him some extra votes, I would imagine. Let's fast forward now. Based on my research, we're basically at a low point percentage-wise for the number of veterans serving in Congress. Do I have that right? The numbers have dramatically declined since their apex in the 1970s when nearly three-quarters of Congress were veterans. I'd like to remind people that while the members of Congress that have military service is definitely far, far, far less than it has been in the past, it's still higher than you'd expect if we somehow randomly put people in Congress. And so something about our political system must advantage veterans in some way. It must facilitate military service experience in some way in the candidate pipeline. The power of that military service confers instant legitimacy was made very obvious to me when I ran an experiment where I basically took a campaign ad, a real campaign ad that was run in the Minnesota 1st District when Tim Walls was running for Congress the first time. And his advertisement was a very typical biographical ad just to introduce himself to Minnesota voters. Everyday heroes. Right here in Minnesota, Tim Walls is one of those everyday people. Coach to the state champs, teacher of the year, command sergeant major. And so I edited the ad so that some of the subject in the experiment saw Tim Walls as a military veteran and some did not see his military experience. It was a little bit of a ruse because the subjects thought they were looking at a marketing survey. And so they saw these ads along with some minivan ads just to distract them. And then afterward, you ask them about the minivan and then you ask them about the candidates, specifically asking about competence on being able to handle various issues like crime or healthcare, et cetera. And the people that saw Tim Walls as a military veteran were overwhelmingly far more likely to see Tim Walls as able to handle issues of national defense and security than the people that saw his doppelganger that did not have military service. And so it's pretty easy to conclude that voters then consume that piece of information very readily. So I think that the military veteran queue, the reason it works is because it's so positively correlated with things that we value, like patriotism, like sacrifice, like national defense security issues. And candidates really need to try to crack into a voter's mind with very limited bandwidth. You don't get much attention from people. And so the more you can communicate in the shortest amount of time is a critical skill for campaign craft. And military veteran is an extremely efficient, positive attribute that candidates can bring to the table. But no matter what the party affiliation was or any of the other factors, the consistent reaction was 
he's more capable when they heard that he was in the military. Exactly. Irrespective of what party label I gave him, there were more details I left out there. I changed Tim Walls from a Republican to a Democrat, as well as ignoring his party. So there were multiple different stimuli, but the main one was the one I mentioned. And whether he's a Republican, Independent, or a Democrat, if they consumed that very brief little piece of biographical information, it dramatically enhanced their impression of how he, as a congressman, would be able to handle security and defense issues. By the way, an interesting note about Tim Walls. He went on to win his race for Congress in 2006, and he has served six terms in office. And now, in 2018, Walls is running for governor of Minnesota. And if you check out his brief biography online, the first thing that is mentioned is his military service. Relatively speaking, it sounds like if the Democrats find more veterans to run, they will get an additional marginal benefit from running veterans than Republicans do just because of the two parties' different reputations on national security. Mike, I think that's true. The Republican Party advantage that they have enjoyed on national security and defense issues since Vietnam has decayed a bit since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I still think there's a baseline advantage that Republicans enjoy there. And Democrats, by fielding candidates with military service experience, are able to counter that. Now, we always need to remember the 2004 presidential election, however. The Democrats made John Kerry's military service extremely central to the identity of John Kerry as a presidential candidate. It was a wartime election. It was the year after the United States invaded Iraq in March of 2003. And Democrats, of course, were in a bit of a pickle because many Democrats had voted in the Senate to authorize use of force in 2003. And so in 2004, as Iraq was spiraling out of control, the Democrats nominated a combat veteran with Purple Hearts, who had served in the Vietnam War, who came home after Vietnam to testify in the Senate that the war was going badly and American efforts were doomed to fail. And the Republicans obviously felt that this was probably Kerry's best advantage. But what happened two weeks later, the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth campaign ran this ad where they had found some of the men that had served with John Kerry that said, terrible things about him and attacked John Kerry at this very piece of credibility that the Democrats and Kerry had tried so hard to build up. So candidates who use military service to try to enhance their electoral appeal should remember that it's best done subtly. It's best done in a range of other things. Merely being a veteran and not having any other attributes is unlikely to win you many votes. So now we're in a situation where we have a lot of veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. Many of them have significant combat experience. How is that military experience playing on the political landscape in an extremely polarized Congress? That's a really big question. And I've had a few people ask me about this very question of, does military service provide some kind of balm for our current state of hyperpolarized politics. Are individuals with this shared bond of a military experience able to reach across the aisle more than somebody who lacks that experience? Are military veterans better able to put common interests first in a way that those without military service can? And that's a complicated question. 
there are lots of reasons that Washington, D.C. is where it is today with its level of rancor and its level of polarization that has nothing to do with the military biographies of the men and women who enter politics. Gerrymandering, our hyper-polarized media environment can't help either. So there are reasons just endemic to late 20th, early 21st century politics that have helped perpetuate you know, a Congress that sees red versus blue and left versus right. It's a lot to ask of this class of individuals who have spent time in the armed services, came home, and now are being asked to solve a, <laughs> a, a very pervasive problem. That said, they are well positioned to be part of the solution. They do have this shared experience where they were forced to put mission first and country first and understand that teamwork is a necessary ingredient for success. And so if anyone has the ability to try to start to solve this problem, military veterans do have a shared experience that might hold the key. Got you. And one of the reasons I'm starting this series on veterans running for office, Politico just recently did a piece. They found that 300 veterans have been running for Congress during this cycle. And interestingly, about half are Democrats and half are Republicans. Has that the way it's always been? Has it always been sort of an equal divide, you know? It varies year to year, and I'm not sure there's any meaningful pattern behind the variation. This year is not unique in the partisan balance, but it does feel unique, both the numbers as well as the districts in which the veterans seem to be emerging. In the past, veterans have been nominated in many congressional races, but not in competitive ones particularly. But in 2018, it really feels like the Democrats in particular are nominating veterans in races where they have a shot to win. Are there any vignettes or personal stories that you've come across in your research that bring this issue into bold relief? A woman running in the New Jersey 11th by the name of Mickey Sherrill. She's an Annapolis grad and Navy officer, was a helicopter pilot, and was a extremely compelling candidate, sufficiently compelling that the incumbent long-serving incumbent, Riley Friedlingheisen, decided, like many other Republicans, to move toward the exits this cycle. And it's looking at the messaging, looking at her campaign website, looking at her press releases, looking at journalistic accounts of her candidacy, none of them fail to mention her Navy service before the third line. Like if you read any media account, it'll say something like Mickey Sherrill, comma, U.S. Navy veteran, comma, has position X on issue Y. In that Politico story, I think they described a scene where she was going into a diner or a restaurant and people weren't really giving her the time of day. And as soon as she mentioned her military experience, people wanted to hear more. It's an arresting fact, especially as it cross-correlates with gender. The increasing numbers of women in the military in the very recent history has started to produce female veterans that are politically minded entering our politics. Voters use a limited amount of information to make conclusions about electoral candidates, and gender is a cue. And it's not great, but when people see females, they start thinking of various stereotypes and make conclusions about them based on this limited information. Candidate is female. Ergo, she is unlikely to know things about topics that get correlated with masculinity and men. And so for a female to come to the 
table, political table with military service gives someone like Mickey Sherrill an opportunity that otherwise females do not enjoy that offers instant credibility on national defense and security issues. Is there anything you think we haven't covered that you really want to communicate? I'd love to circle back to the idea that different generations of Americans following different wars tend to generate a different understanding of the value of military service. You know, we've been talking a lot about the World War II cohort and their commonalities, as we've said, are they had this shared experience. There was no partisan implication. But think of the men that would run for president in the years following our civil war. They fought a partisan battle that couldn't be handled by ballots anymore and needed to be solved with bullets. And so these men sort of refought the Civil War every time they ran for president. And so being a veteran in that era took an extremely partisan dimension. So the idea of who a veteran is has everything to do with the war that was just fought. And then similarly, the individuals that would go on to run in the era that was defined by the Vietnam War, think of Bill Clinton or John Kerry, questions of this war from 40 years ago kept getting turned over again. And so investigating Donald Trump's draft affirmance, or why didn't Mitt Romney serve, or why didn't any of his sons serve? John McCain, I like heroes that weren't captured. George Bush and Dan Quayle, they were assailed for somehow using family influence to get them into National Guard units that were unlikely to rotate to Vietnam. These were all issues that followed the Vietnam War. And because of the complicated legacy of the Vietnam War, a different dynamic surrounds the candidates that would run for president in the years from approximately, we'll say, Bill Clinton in 1992 through 2016. And so now we're entering this new phase. I think so. This cohort of individuals that are now becoming congressional candidates and presumably presidential candidates in some time, 2024, 28, 32, who knows, we will very likely see a presidential candidate with experience in Iraq or Afghanistan if American history provides any context for trying to predict what happens in the future. Professor of Political Science at Ramapo College, Jeremy Teigen, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts. And if you love it, I hope you'll take a minute to convey that on the ratings and reviews section of the subscription page. You can also follow and subscribe on my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.